All right, turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. And I really think, though, before you can go into Romans 12, like I just prayed, you almost have to appreciate that you can't understand this chapter without going back and you again to see the progression of this letter so that you can know why Paul in Romans 12 starts with that word. What's the word? Therefore. So we have to know that um, it all started with Romans 1. He starts this letter by informing us and reminding us that we live in a wicked world. We live in a sinful environment. All, all, we, we just, it is just, there's no other way to put it. We live in a wicked world. However, we've been given a savior. We've been given someone named Jesus who can change all that. And Paul, what did he say? I am not ashamed of that gospel. I'm not ashamed of that news at all because I know what it did for me. And so in, in, the first, in the first chapter, he just is an overall view of let's just have you see that we live in sin. It's everyone is affected by it, and, but there's hope. And then he moves on to the second chapter, and he says, he starts talking to religious people and says, just want to remind you that all of your righteousness is it has come from Jesus and this outward appearance, this legalistic way of thinking you're, that you're okay, um, it, that's not it. So in the second chapter, outward appearance is not good enough. And I think what we saw last week from the proverb is that we need to pay attention and apply it. You can't just hear it. You've got to apply it. And, and so in the second chapter, he says, sometimes religious people need to be talked to because they're missing it because of all of their religion. And then he moves on to the third chapter to say, because I want you to realize that there is no one righteous. No, not one. And all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. So in the third chapter, he just makes it very clear where we stand. And then in the fourth chapter, he moves and talks about a word called faith. He said it is essential because all Christianity is based on faith. And what is faith? It's that choice to believe, the choice to believe and trust even though you can't actually see him. You believe and trust. And remember, I went, I told you that whole Billy Graham thing about when he, when he, when he was, you know, how do I know this Bible is true? And he said, he finally came to the conclusion, I believe it's true by faith. I choose to believe it's true. And in case someone would ever ask you, how do you know this Bible is true? How come you spend so much time? How come you make such an effort every Tuesday? How come it's such a priority to you? How come you spend time during the day? Studying this one book, come on, there's a lot of books out there. How come? Because this is the only book that's true and God-breathed. But they'll say, but how do you know? What's your proof? 
Oh, well, you know, every prophecy that was prophesied came true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But how do you know it's true? I love it. Ruth is pointing to her because I look in the mirror. I know what it's done for me. That's proof. That's my story. And we should all have one. And it all depends on faith. None of us actually saw Jesus die on the cross. We didn't actually see him come out of the grave. We weren't standing there when he ascended. But I'll tell you, you and I have no doubt because by faith we've chosen to believe because it has worked in our life. So um, remember how, how Paul talked about Abraham and he said, in all earthly hope, in all earthly hope, against all earthly hope, he chose to believe in the hope, the promised hope, a sure thing. So he did not waver in the promise that God gave him. So faith is such in that fourth chapter. It says, just know that your faith is, well, it's your faith that pleases God because he knows that you've just got to trust him. You've just got to believe it. So there. And then in the fifth chapter, he moved on and said, um, you know, it's, remember that's a chapter that I said, I almost could hear Paul say, what's the matter with you people? You know, after knowing that, that you know, you have a Savior and, and that, that kind of thing, he says, you've been justified. What's the matter with you people? How come you don't wake up in the morning and realize, hey, there is nothing that could happen to me today that could take away my most serious thing, and that's that I was lost, but I'm found. And no one can take that away. My sin not part, but the hole was nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. No one can take that away. You've been justified. You now have peace with God. You have access to his throne. You can live in that hope that you know what's coming. What is the matter with you people? And then he says, and you can also rejoice in the fact that, yeah, yeah, you suffer. But this suffering, again, I can't help but say, if we didn't have tough times, if he didn't bring us to our knees, if we didn't, if he didn't teach us how to cling to him, throw up our hands and realize we can't do it. If he, well, we would be cocky snots, not needing anything. I hate to say it, but that's what we would be. Independent, self-consumed. So Paul said, rejoice that, that he loves you enough to show you how to cling to him and realize that if you do rejoice in your suffering, if you, again, by faith, believe that this suffering can produce a perseverance, it will produce a godly character more than you had before. And it will also produce in you, again, more of that hope that will never disappoint you. And then in the sixth and seventh chapter, we did those two together. And um, Paul reminded us, okay, um, I just want you to know that you're in a war. You're in a battle with yourself. And you need to be mindful that that old nature, even though it's supposed to have been crucified, because we live in this world and we're still in power of this environment and because flesh still wants its way, you are in a war, a battle. However, you have been set free of that 
hold that sin has on you. You see, before Jesus, sin had you. <laughs> it just plain had you. I don't know how else to put it. But once Jesus came into your life, then you now have a choice to say, well, I can go into my corner of down to defeat, discouragement, hopelessness, and worthlessness. I still can do that if I want. However, I have a choice to activate that Holy Spirit that lives inside of me, that gift that was given to me at Calvary. Because the Lord knew I couldn't possibly live a Christian life and live in this hope without help. So he gave us his Holy Spirit. But Paul says, let me tell you, when I choose to, to push the Spirit aside, and because Paul, I think when he writes the 6th and especially the 7th chapter, he says, I want you to know, this is what it looks like. When I choose, because, because now I do have that choice, and when I decide, no, you know what, I feel sorry for myself today. I've got to write. I've got to comment. So, you know, I'm just going to wallow in this for a while. Paul said, I know. I'm a human just like you. And he says, let me tell you. Let me tell you what it looks like. I don't do what I should do. And what I should do, I don't do. And then he said, oh, what a wretch I am. He said, I know right away. And I think, why in the world, why in the world do I even go there? And then don't, didn't you just love the way he ended when he said, who can rescue me? And I almost wanted to add again. <laughs> who can rescue me again? And he said, thanks be to God, there's the Lord Jesus so in 6 and 7, he really truly reminds us that, yes, you know, we have all of what Romans 1 to 5 tells us, but you've got to be aware that you are constantly battling that, that self. And then Romans 8 came. And then we loved our Romans 8 because Paul says, I want everyone waking up in the morning saying, there is now no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Boy, you talk about a freedom. And then he talked about in that chapter how that Holy Spirit, when we don't even know what to pray for, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. And how we love to think that we have a power inside of us that will intercede for what we need right smack to the throne. But again, we're reminded the Holy Spirit will ask only for what for you. God's will. That's right. That's right. And then in that chapter, just like I prayed, we can know. And Paul is good about making sure that we see. You can know. That means no doubt, no second guessing. He says, I can know. You can know that everything that happens, there's reason. And it's for your good, believe it or not. And his whole purpose for you is to get you in a closer walk with him. And he'll do whatever he has to do because happy and comfortable, he didn't care about that. All he cares about is that you and I walk close with him. And whatever it needs, whatever it has to happen for him to get our attention so that we, that again, we cling to him more. And then he says these words, and you talk about another freedom word, if God's for me. If God is for me, who can be against me? He's saying, if you know, and you should know that God is for you. He proved that to you. 
then why are you so bogged down about what people think? If God is for you, who can be against you? If they are, to who to them? And then he moves on and says, do you know what? You, can, you don't have to live like victims. You can be a victor because you and I, because of Jesus, we're more than conquerors. We're more than conquerors through Christ. And then he says, and, and I'm convinced. <laughs> See, that's another one of those words. He says, I am so sure. I am convinced. Convinced. No one's going to tell me any different. No one's going to sway me on this one. See, that's why I, I think Paul is such a great mentor because he gets us to the point where he says, you know what? No one's going to tell me different. No, I'm, I'm not going to buy anything else when anybody, I am convinced that there is nothing that can separate me from God's love. And then we did 9, 10, and 11 together. And this is where he, you know, he talked about the fact that, you know, that the Jews were the, were the, the Israelites were, were the family that God chose to bring the Savior through and, and all that. And, and yet they, of all people, they wouldn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And so God chose Paul to be, even though he was a Jew, to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And then he said, and what is that what is that message to Jew gentile alike old young rich poor um small large i mean black white um, i mean it just puts it together and i love the way he ended the 11th chapter pretty much by saying you know what god just absolutely bound us all over to disobedience we are all affected by sin we all need a savior he reminds us of that he said, but he offers this, and the word is near you. It's on your lap. It's probably four books, four Bibles are in your house. Open up the two covers, would you, and realize that the word is near you, and it is telling you that if, if you want, here's your choice, if you want to confess with your mouth, and if you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. Remember in Romans 10 where we said the verse together? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. And what does that mean? He, you call out to him. That means I need help. And everyone who says I need help, he said, I'll save you. And then he talks about it. He gives us that word picture of Israel, you know, and that we, we are graf engrafted in. And any, any gardener knows that a good graft, if it takes, oh, it produces just like anything else. And Gentiles have been grafted into that tree of life. That tree of the family, Abraham's children, a part of the promise. Um, we, we, are all, we are one of all the nations that the promise was for. And that's why right after that, he says, all Israel will be saved. He didn't say all Jews will be saved. He said all Israel. And that means anybody who's, who's a branch on that tree, the tree is called Israel. And if you are a believer and you are, you are getting your nourishment and your life from that tree, then he said, I guarantee you, you will be saved. 
I mean, what a promise of security for us. And that's why then he says, when you deserved none of that, but you have all of that. That's why then he moves in and says, therefore, today, therefore, I urge you, I beseech you, whatever word you want to use, that sounds like Paul saying, I am begging you. I can't make you do it. I can't do that. But boy, I am so strongly urging you, beseeching you to take what he has done for you. And how can you say thanks? Well, of course, he loves it when we verbally say thank you. But he said, I, I like it even better when I see you prove it. So Paul said, I am urging you, I'm beseeching you to offer yourself in view of Romans 1 through 11. And you didn't deserve any of it. But you have all of it then I want you to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. And you know why Paul put living in there? Because most sacrifices are dead. So I want you a living sacrifice. I want your body to do something as proof that you are grateful. That just sitting there consumed with yourself. I know we all can't do what we used to do, but I am watching too many of you wonderful women of God take your elderly years and are willing to do something. So, do you know that's holy and pleasing to God? I mean, he, then he sees that, you know what, I, I believe she means it. She's willing to put all else aside and, and believe that I'm, that I'm her top priority. She is really grateful for her salvation, and this is how she wants to say thank you. I mean, come on. Every one of us understand that. If somebody does something for you, and you are so grateful, the first thing you want to do is, of course, say thank you. But there's a part of you that says, oh, I just got to show them how grateful I am. I think we will all, we understand that concept. He says, well, guess what? God's the same way. And he wants to see that we are grateful. And the best way we can do it is offering ourselves as living sacrifices. And he said, that is your spiritual act of worship. In other words, that's what you do. That's the way you worship him, by offering him every morning. Okay, Lord, it's another day. You're giving me breath. What do you want me to do for you today? What opportunity do you want me to see that you want to use me for? Do not conform. Now he gets a, now he gets a little, um, uh, do not. Now, I don't hear any if you feel like it. No, he's saying do not conform. He knows that it's such a big temptation to live in the culture, to live in the environment, to, to fall prey, to this is what everybody's doing. And he said do not conform any longer. You did that for plenty of time, but now you are a new creature in Christ. Old is gone, so don't conform any longer to this world. You know, I'm, I'm still reminded of, you know, when Eve kind of 
well, when the, when the serpent said to her, did God really say that you were not to eat? And then she said, yes, he did. And we are not to touch it. Remember when she kind of exaggerated and God never said that. And the reason why God never said you can't touch it is because when you live in a world, it's, you're going to touch it. It's going to touch you. You're going to rub elbows with it. You have to touch it. But what God said, you can't eat of it because that concept is just so spiritual too. When you eat of something, it becomes a part of you. And then it comes out of you. That, that physical, spiritual concept, it's just it's so, so relevant. And that's why he said, don't eat of it. Don't, don't make it a part of you. Don't conform to it. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In other words, your mind has got to be absolutely changed. Because, and that's why when we say turn your eyes upon Jesus, we often say, why do we need to turn? Because you know what? We're just heading in that self-direction. We're heading in the world's direction. That's just what we naturally do with no effort. It's the inner tube going down the current. And he's saying, nope, I want you swimming against it. I don't want you to conform to this world. I want your mind to be changed so that it's altogether different way of thinking. And I know the Bible says that what's in our heart, you know, it's by the overflow of the heart the mouth speaks. And yet Paul is saying, I want your mind renewed the Holy Spirit lives in our heart, and yet Paul says, I want your mind changed. Someone last night had a hard time, and she wrote me last night, and, and I said to her, you know, I know those verses. I know that Jesus said that it's your heart that matters. And yet Paul is saying, I want your mind changed. She says, I don't understand. What should I be working at more? And I said, I, the only way that I can say, and maybe that's why the Lord gave me such a simple mind, is that I said, you know what? I picture the mind and the heart holding hands. I picture the two because I know the Holy Spirit is in my heart. And yet, I have to make a conscientious choice with this mind of how I'm going to take the Holy Spirit's instruction. Because remember, wisdom is calling out to me, but so is folly. And so even though the Holy Spirit and his word is, is, is laying so alive in my heart, but yet it takes my mind to take what's in my heart and make good choices out of it. So, I mean, maybe, maybe I've confused you more than anything, but I hope that you can just kind of see that the Lord does work with our heart, but our minds have to be transformed because it's what, what's in our mind is then what triggers what comes out of our mouth and what comes out of our actions. That's the way the body mechanism works. So I said to her, I said, just picture the heart and the mind holding hands. They work together. If your mind is deceived, that does affect the heart. I mean, it corrupts your heart. And so that's why the two do work together. So don't get confused by that when Paul said, you know, work on your mind. Because that's when she said, what do I work on, my heart or my mind? You tell me i got to work on my heart. And then Paul tells me I need my mind changed. 
you know. But the two do, they do work together. And he said, I want you to be renewed. I want your mind to be thinking different. But that's all going to be what, what's in your heart. And then look at what happens. You then will be able to test and approve God's will. He's pretty much saying then when your heart and mind are working together, you are going to want nothing but God's will because you know that God's will is good, it's pleasing, and it's perfect. See, but unless you really know that, you're not going to trust it. You're not going to dare say, I want your will. Your will be done. I know I'm supposed to say it, but I don't quite trust it because I think I know what I, I need better. He said, no, when, when your mind is transformed, then you will dare say, your will is good, it's pleasing, and perfect. And then he moves on to verse 3, and he says, for by the grace given me, Paul knows that he is who he is because of that word grace. Oh, he wasn't, he was a great Pharisee, very smart, very intellectual, very gifted, very, very much impressive. And he does say, and I, I grew up with a lot of pluses and a lot of credentials, <laughs> But he knows that the core of his salvation and the core of who he is now is because of grace. So he starts by saying that right off the bat, I want you to know that it's only by grace. And we have, we have that phrase, if, if, if it weren't for the grace of God, so I could be. I mean, so he says, just want you to know that we live in this grace so by saying that first, then I can say to every one of you, oh, keep remembering from what you came from and that we all are products of his grace. So don't you ever think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you, just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function. So in Christ, we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. I think the reason why he writes that is because when he had to write his letter to the people of Corinth, man, they had the spiritual gifts all out of whack. He, they thought that, that the, visible, the visible gifts were the ones most important. And so that, that made that, that person more important. And Paul, he, when he wrote to Corinth, man, he laid down the law and he made sure they knew. And that's why he, he went and expounded more because they had a real problem with that. But he said to the people of Rome, I just, I just want to make sure that you don't get caught in that, that you think you're better because maybe you have a spiritual gift that's maybe a little more visible. We are all part of one body. We have one goal in mind. And he gives to each member, he says, we have different gifts according to the grace given us. He has, a, he has a purpose for us. He has a plan when he created us. And he has, a, he has us all on a mission, and he gives us a, the spiritual gift that's necessary or gifts that's necessary to fulfill. 
It's not because you're any better than anybody. It's because God ordained this plan for you, and he knew you couldn't do it without a spiritual gift from him. We all have different gifts. He says, if it is is serving, let him serve. If it's teaching, let him teach. If it's encouraging, let him encourage. If it's contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it's leadership, let him govern diligently. If it's showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. Just do it. Just use the gift. But, oh, always remember to keep his purpose in mind. You are, you... All parts, one body, to get the one job done. And what's the job? Bring others to the saving knowledge of Christ. And to disciple them so they get to know him better. Now, sometimes the fruit of the Spirit and the spiritual gifts get a little, get a little confusing. Because some people think, well, you know, obviously we all have different spiritual gifts and none of us have them all. So then they revert to the fruit of the spirit and say, well, then I guess I could pick and choose these too. I'm not supposed to have patience. No, I, I wasn't given patience. Or um, no, you know, um, I'm not the kindest person in the world. But, you know, that's just me. He says... I want to make sure you see altogether different that the fruit of the Spirit is, to, is totally different. The, the fruit, and that's why in the next paragraph he starts with love must be sincere. And so now he's talking to, okay, I want you to make sure that you all know that, that we all have different gifts, and, but no one's any better than anybody else, and we all have to remember it's all because of grace. But then the next, the very next section, he's saying, okay, now, now we're going to talk fruit of the Spirit. And that's not something you can choose and pick. And sometimes people have a hard time when I say this, that they think that if you don't have, and that's why it's not fruits of the Spirit, it's fruit of the Spirit. And then if you watch that sin's you will see that he's talking about a singular. That means you and I are expected to have all nine characteristics of Christ. And the Holy Spirit is the only one that can produce. Now, there is a cheap counterfeit to every one of those nine fruit. And I call it fruit itself. Because there's always something coming out of us, and it's either the fruit of self or it's fruit of the spirit. And I mean, it can be changed from one minute to the next. I can be, I can allow the Holy Spirit to be running my life, and I can see how I love what's coming out. And that quick, if someone crosses me, I just booted him off the throne, and self got back on, and then voila, guess what comes out? Fruit of self. So. Why he puts fruit in singular is you cannot say, well, you know, I've got love today and joy today, but I don't have patience. That, nah. You're either walking with the Spirit as the head of your life, and you have all of them, or you're walking with self as the head of your life right in this minute, and you have none of them. And if you say, well, I know, I have a little, no, then you're, that's a counterfeit that self is producing. Does that make sense? 
it's tough. But, and that's why how, how quickly it can change. I mean, I can wake up in the morning saying and just making sure that, that the Holy Spirit is on the throne of my life so that my countenance, my words, my attitude, everything is run by him. And then I get out of bed. <laughs> and that, that sometimes that can be, you can have some, you know, it can be just something quick. That's why we have to acknowledge that it's, we're at war. And we have to see that spiritual gifts, that's S, that's plural, but fruit of the spirit is singular. And it's all because who is running your character? Now, we're all different personalities. Someone said to me, you know, um, so-and-so just bubbles with kindness. Well, I don't bubble, so does that mean I don't have kindness? No, that's her personality. Sometimes the fruit of the Spirit will come out different in, in some of us because we have different personalities. He will produce the fruit that we need at the right time, but I'm saying all of them work together. And I believe they're in perfect order because I think that when you know how to love sincerely, I know I'm getting sidetracked a little, but it's all because of I want to make sure we know what love sincerely means. Love must be sincere, Paul says. And he's the one that wrote in Galatians 5 about the fruit of the Spirit. So he knows the difference from Corinthians about the spiritual gifts and the way he writes the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians. He says, I want you to know the difference here. Love must be sincere. And I believe that that starts the ball rolling. I think all the other eight are connected to love. When you have love, when you have sincere love, and what, what, what kind of love is that? That's what kind of love, if, if you ever want to go to um, God's Word and find out what real love is, all you have to do is go to 1 John chapter 4, and the one who called himself the beloved, John understood. He, that's why he called himself the beloved, because he knew what love meant. He got to learn what love meant. And so in 1 John 4, he comes right out and says, you want to know what love is? Oh, let me tell you right now, it's not what you think. It's not that you love God first. Love originated with him when he decided to love you anyway and send his son. That's what love is. That's how it started. Love is unconditional because while you were yet sinners, he died for you. I mean, he died for you when you didn't even know you needed him. Love it must be sincere. That means unconditional. It means grace-filled. It means it, no strings attached. And when you have that kind of love working through you, because, boy, we love to take it. We love to go to the cross and take all that grace and unconditional love. And, and he said, no, I want that to work through. I want this to be working through you. Love must be sincere. And if you love sincerely with that kind of love, no strings attached, because you catch yourself. See if you love and put, I'll love you if. I'll love you, but I expect. That's the cheap counterfeit. Every Joe Blow knows how to do that. But loving unconditionally is something that only the spirit can produce. 
And then the Holy Spirit can't wait then to show you that when you love sincerely, you will have, oh man, you will have a joy. A joy that you can't even really explain because it comes from within. It has nothing to do with happy. It has to do with him. And Jesus even said, when you know me, your joy will be complete. So that sincere love will lead to joy. And when you have that kind of joy, then you know what that does? It just puts you at peace. (laughs) We're going to get to more of the fruit. We're going to see this. But I want you just to understand the difference between the two. Love must be sincere. And then he says, and this is where Paul gets real, you know, because sometimes it can be so beautiful, wordy, you know. But here he just kind of reminds me of James he just one line, one-liners that, kind of like Solomon, just one-liners. I'm not going to confuse you by, by using a lot of explanation. I'm telling you, love must be sincere. Second sentence, hate what is evil. That's not the end of the sentence. You just, you just, um, he says, I just want you to first see the first half of the sentence. Hate what is evil. And you and I, I'm sure at first we think, oh, well, of course I hate evil. Oh, man, I just hate listening to those poor little girls talk about what Larry Nasser did. I hate it. Oh, so, so he said, you know, so that's no problem. I hate it. I hate evil. I hate when I watch the news and so-and-so threw a bomb and, and murdered and, and drove a bus down the sidewalk. Hate it. He's oh no. It, it goes more than that. Hate what is evil. You know what he's saying? Because I, I just am following all this from run to now. <laughs> hate what is evil. He's saying hate it when you start seeing that old self rise up and it's supposed to be crucified. Because when you start putting yourself in charge of you, that's evil. And so when you start seeing that old nature come up, when you start seeing that crabby countenance, when you start seeing that critical spirit and that short temper and all those things, I don't know what yours is. We all know what our old nature is like. He said, when you see it, hate it. Hate it so much that you will then want to, and here's the rest of the sentence. Cling to what is good. Cling. And he, cling, I, I like that word. What, what is the word in King James? Cleave. Cleave. Okay, cleave, cling. I mean, it's a kind of word that shows hang on tight. Cling to what is good. And what is good? Why do you have to cling to it? Because yourself wants to take you. You want to listen to folly. But you have to cling to the Holy Spirit's trying to get you to hear God's wisdom. And it happens between these two covers. <laughs> the word is near you. Cling to it. That's why I said to you this morning, when you don't feel like coming, oh, that's when you need it the most because you have disconnected that cling. And we need to cling be devoted. Now, if this is where Paul is going to start to say, chapters 1 through 11, God did everything that needed to be done. 
It's yours for the choosing if you choose it. Well, don't think that just getting your ticket. No, this is he expects a change, a transformation, not the old you, a new you. And this is what it looks like. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Okay, what's the opposite of that? Division. Instead, he says, I want you devoted to one another. In brotherly love, that unconditional love, that means, you know what? You don't always need your way. You don't always need things just the way you want it. Honor one another. Honor one another. Because who do you really, what does flesh want to do? Honor who? Cars, yeah. He says, now, no, it's the new you. Remember when we did Proverbs last week and we talked about what wisdom will do? Wisdom will build a new house. And, and that new house, guess what? The more that you, that you feed on understanding, it said you will be established. And that will change every room. That will change every area of your, of your being. It will affect everything about you, your new house. And you'll be filled with, with rare jewels and treasures. In other words, there, there is so much treasure and value in God's word. Your new house. Your new house is looking and acting different. You want to honor one another above yourself. Never be lacking in zeal. Never be lacking in zeal. Now, we know from Proverbs and Paul, they both said that, you know, don't have zeal without knowledge. Now, Paul now says, oh, never be lacking in zeal. But he, by now, is expecting you to have the knowledge of God's word and the life-changing power of God's spirit inside of you. So he's saying, don't ever take this for granted. Don't get a whole hum about it. Don't lose your sparkle. Don't lose your passion and excitement and your spiritual fervor. Don't take this for granted. In fact, I think this is, I couldn't help but go to Revelation 2 where, God, where Jesus said to John, write this down. Write this down because, uh, and then send it. Send it to the church of Ephesus because that is a great church. They're doing a lot of great things, but oh, the one thing, one thing they are doing, and it's important to me. They have lost their first love. They have lost their zeal. They've lost their excitement. They've lost their passion. They've lost their, their sparkle. Write a letter saying, what's the matter with you people? And, and it's so important. You tell them that if they don't get that back, because see, that's the first thing people see before we even open our mouth. They see the, the, the passion, the excitement, the, the sparkle, the light of Jesus. And he said to, he said to John, you, you write down and tell them that it means so much to me that if they don't get that back, I'm taking it down their lampstand. I'm going to take them. They are ineffective with me. With their, with their blah attitude. That's not, that's not 
calling people to me. Their whole hum attitude, no, they're ineffective. I'm going to shut them down, tell them. So that's how important. So when he says, never, never be lacking zeal, but keep your spiritual fear for serving the Lord. It's not about you. It's about him. Be joyful in hope. Be joyful in hope. Boy, that's Jesus. Come on. Your new house, the new you. You are supposed to be looking ahead. You're supposed to be looking forward. You're not supposed to be watching the news saying, oh, we're doomed. This is a mess. We're terrible. We're going down. He says, no, be joyful in your hope. What is your hope? You know he's coming back, and he's going to right every wrong, and he is going to give you a home that he's prepared for you. And all will be perfect. And you will never have to battle any of this stuff again. Live like it. Be joyful in hope. Be patient in affliction. Oh. He had to put that in there because he said, you know what? Life just hurts sometimes. What do, what, what do we want to do with our affliction? What do we what? We want to go on. We want to, we, and he's saying, I want you to be patient with your affliction because you know what? I'm there. I know there's a lot of people. And that's why one of the letters to, in the Revelation 2, went to a church that just seemed to have one suffering after another. And it's not that they were doing anything wrong, but it was a letter of encouragement. Be patient. Wait on the Lord. That's what patient is. And that's why it's a fruit of the Spirit. And that's why peace then leads to patience. Because when you're at peace with God, you wait on his timing. You wait on his will. They that wait on the Lord find that their strength is renewed. You wait on him for your strength to get through the day. In fact, you find that you're, you can mount up. Run and not be weary and walk and not faint. Be patient. Wait on the Lord in your affliction. So you wake up every morning and you say, oh, nuts. I was hoping that was a nightmare. Or, oh, I still have this disease. Be patient in your affliction and whatever your face says, just wait on the Lord for it. He will give you what it takes to get through. Faithful in prayer. Be faithful in prayer. And, you know, that's a whole other Bible study, if you ask me. You know, prayer is not closing your eyes and folding your hands and start talking to them. Prayer is a connection that your little as spirit has with the Holy Spirit. And so he says, be faithful to keep that connection connected. Be, be careful because, see, they're going to go back to if you don't want to come, if you don't want any more of this, if you just want to start wallow, he said, no, guess what? Some disconnected, and it's called the, your spirit and the Holy Spirit disconnected. And so be faithful in prayer because that's what prayer is. That's why Paul says never stop praying because it's a connection. Closing your eyes and folding your hands and talking to them, that's just part of it. But reading your Bible and studying your Bible, that's prayer. Going over um, hymns that inspire you, that's, that's prayer. That, that's what keeps the connection going. Be faithful in keeping that connection. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Again, he's saying the new you, it's not about you anymore. Before it was. 
But your new house, it's all about him. Bless those who persecute you. Oh, that's fun. I wanted to take a black pen and just cross that right out. <laughs> Bless those who persecute you. Now, we don't know persecution nearly like, like people in other countries. I know that. But persecution of any kind is hard. And he said, bless those who persecute you. That to, me, to me, it gets harder and harder as he progresses in this chapter. But he said, the new house will do this. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Because those who persecute you, I do soon have a few choice words for them. But he says, no, no. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. You know, it's sad that he's even got to put that in there. But unfortunately, the old house, I don't know, there's things called jealousy and envy. And if somebody gets a position that you deserved or if somebody didn't get what you thought, (laughs) it's so hard to rejoice with those who rejoice when I wanted it. He's saying, no, the new house, the real, the real, the Holy Spirit wants to produce in you an ability to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Care, would you? Care. Live in harmony with one another. See what I mean? It just gets harder and harder. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. You know, that, that just really is terrible, you know. But he's saying, you know, but human nature, let's face it, be honest. It feels good walking with people that <laughs> good association. Oh, boy, it makes me look good, too. James even writes about it. When James says, remember how you say to the lowly, oh, you sit over there. You sit at my feet. I mean, you can't even imagine. I know, but human nature... Since self is so sneaky with little attitudes, I don't know if I want to be seen with them. If I'm seen with them, then they associate, and then I'm, oh, then I'm labeled. No, the new house, the new house, because of the grace of God. I mean, it just all works together here. If it, if it is possible, be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, I love that he inserted that because he's saying, I know some people are just plain difficult to get along with. And some committees just are, just reek because there's some nasty people on there. You know, that's pretty much what he's saying. Believe me, I know. He says, so as far as it depends on you, because you know what? You can't help that. You can't, you can't do anything about that. So, but you can do, you have control over you. And so as far as it depends on you, this is what I want you to do. You, you have the new house. You just wish they knew what a new house was all about. But that's between them and God. So as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. See, and that, that is so true because, see, revenge is because we want them to pay now. 
But what did we learn in Proverbs? What did Paul or what did Solomon say? Now be sure of this. I know I keep going back that, but to me, when he said, be sure of this, I want you to remember this, that the wicked will be punished. They are not going to get away with it. I know it looks like they are right now. So do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. Leave room, leave time. He's going to handle it. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay. So he says, leave it. And then he says, on the contrary. Oh, this is hard. Not only am I not to revenge, he wants me to totally do something that has got to be Holy Spirit produced because there is no way that I can do this on my own. When your enemy is thirsty, give him something to drink. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. I mean, that could literally, that could be literal, but in a spiritual sense. In doing this, I know, I know, and this is the, the only way I could understand what this means. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. When I came back to one of my boys with a Bible verse, and they said to me, why aren't you smart enough to figure out an answer on your own? You always have to have a Bible verse. And that, that son knew exactly what to say to hurt. And so right then, he was my enemy. And my impulse, oh, give him a drink, feed him, are you crazy? I want to take him about the neck and tell him, you're going to pay for that disrespect. You went after my jugular because you knew God's word, and so you knew how I would react. And that's what he wanted. He wanted to pick a fight. He wanted me to hurt the way I, because I said no to him. And only when I finally realized, now listen to wisdom, I decided to hear the Lord say, feed him. Feed him the truth. And so I looked at him and said, no, I'm not smart enough. I admitted it. I fed him the truth, and the truth was, no, I'm not smart enough. I don't have the right answers, and I'm grateful for a book that does. And I remember that he just stood there, and when I walked away, he still just stood there, and he, his mouth opened, and he had nothing, no words coming out. And that's heaping, that's heaping coals on his head because they have no comeback. There's no fight they're expecting you to get your dukes up and put the boxing gloves on. They're expecting that because that's what nature, human nature does. And when you don't react in that way, and you react the way Jesus always did, he took it under the chin. In fact, he even said, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. Can you believe it? The new house, the new you, we're supposed to be different than reacting to that old nature. And when you react in the new nature, they just stand there. They have nothing to come back with. So do not overcome by evil. Do not be overcome 
Don't let self overcome you and your flesh and what you think you want to do and say and they got it coming. And no, don't be overcome by evil. That's easy. But instead, be overcome, overcome that evil with the fruit of the Spirit, with Christ like character. And what a testimony. And isn't that our goal? To live out our story, that we are real, that we are true, and that we just don't say the words, but our mind has been transformed because of God's grace. Good week.